President Tsai Ing-wen on Sunday censured China for sending multiple batches of warplanes to harass Taiwan over the course of three days, some of which even crossed the median line in the Taiwan Strait. She labeled Beijing's moves as intimidation and of no help to improve China's international image. These Chinese military exercises were seen as a protest against a visit from top U.S. diplomat Keith Kroc, which wrapped up on Saturday. U.S. Undersecretary of State Keith Kroc, in a whirlwind trip, paid a three-day visit to Taiwan, marking a new high in bilateral relations. To this, President Tsai Ing-wen offered her thanks. We give our thanks for these tangible actions that show support for Taiwan. I also hope that the two sides can actively prepare to hold discussions on relevant issues and cooperation projects so that Taipei economic dialogue can be conducted as soon as possible. It's a pity that so far we haven't seen any tangible negotiations. Former President Ma Ying-jeou was not optimistic. KMT chairman Johnny Chiang also trumpeted in a Facebook post that the situation in the Taiwan Strait was treacherous and that the governments in Taipei and Beijing should resume dialogue as quickly as possible. He said it's regrettable that it was getting harder and harder to accumulate goodwill on both sides. People willing to play a role in facilitating communication were stigmatised, he claimed, while those clamouring for war were treated like heroes. Such an atmosphere was absolutely not conducive to peace and stable development in the Taiwan Strait. The higher the rank of visiting Americans, the more tense the situation gets. These two things are connected. This is of no help to China and its international image. We hereby call upon China to exercise self-restraint and not engage in provocations. Cross-strait tensions have not diminished with Croc's departure. While President Tsai is urging China to think about its international image, the KMT has mainly stayed silent and focused on attacking the administration, despite putting out a statement condemning China on Saturday. In the wake of the three-day visit by Undersecretary Keith Kroc, Economics Minister Wang Meihua gave a press conference Sunday to announce that Taiwan and the U.S. will soon begin a formal economic dialogue. This time, the two sides mainly exchange views on topics such as 5G clean networks, restructuring of the industrial supply chain, Indo-Pacific strategy, the new southbound policy, energy infrastructure, investment reviews and global women's economic empowerment. The mood of the meeting was good, but these topics are extremely wide-ranging and the preparation time was rather short, so the discussion did not amount to a formal dialogue. The two sides have already reached a consensus to begin formal dialogue as soon as possible. Many observers also focused on progress toward a bilateral free trade agreement. Wang said the exchanges with the State Department this time were aimed at economic cooperation at a strategic level. She also said the Office of the United States Free Trade Representative is the U.S. government agency responsible for free trade agreements. And that is a different division of the U.S. government. With many dilapidated and weather-stained buildings in Taiwan's cities becoming 
being unsafe. The government is endeavoring to speed up urban renewal projects. On Sunday, President Tsai went to this year's Urban Renewal Expo, stressing the need to accelerate the reconstruction of old buildings. President Tsai and Interior Minister Su Guo-yung went from stall to stall at the expo, showing their interest as well as the government's determination to expedite urban renewal. From 40 cases a month, the number of reconstructions of unsafe and old buildings has gone up exponentially year by year. Since her administration promulgated the statute for expediting reconstruction of urban unsafe and old buildings in late April 2017, urban renewal cases have been required to complete the review process within 75 days, with no limit on the square footage for the first time. The law also incentivises property owners to build a bigger structure on the area of land they own. As a result, the number of urban renewal cases shot up from just 77 in 2016 to 613 in the first eight months of 2020. That number is expected to surpass 1,000 by the year's end. The review process is faster and there's no limit on the area of the property. So now that we have this strategy in place, lots and lots of property owners have come to us and want to proceed with the task. Currently, most of the cases are in Taipei and New Taipei. According to data from the Ministry of Interior, in 2019 there were nearly 700,000 buildings that were over 50 years old across Taiwan. More than 4.1 million buildings were over 30 years old, with 68% located in Taipei City. If the reconstruction of unsafe and old buildings is not carried out post-haste, the number of 30-plus-year-old buildings will surpass 6 million in 10 years. If you look at some of the major cities around the world, like Tokyo, Hong Kong, Amsterdam or London, you'll see that in their urban planning and during their continual process of renewal, they consider what traditions need to be preserved and how to make the building's overall appearance more aesthetic. They constantly make adjustments according to changing times. We now see this happening in Taiwan, especially in Taipei City. It's beginning to catch up to international trends. With the public becoming more aware of the need to live safely and also give cities a facelift, a new wave of urban reconstruction renewal is underway. The flu season normally begins in November, and ahead of this, the government will launch its annual free flu vaccination program on October 5th. However, with the specter of COVID-19 looming, and given that pneumonia and the flu have similar symptoms, the members of the public who do not qualify for the free program are much more willing to get vaccinated this year. Doctors say advance orders for self-paid flu shots are practically booked out. We're about to enter the flu season. This year, the government will provide 6.04 million free flu shots for those who meet the government's requirements. And the vaccination program will be officially launched on October 5th. However, under the influence of the COVID-19 pandemic, the public's awareness of disease protection has increased. And many who are not eligible for the free shots are more willing to pay for them out of their own pockets. If you look at our clinic, some companies have already reserved over 700 doses. That's more than double the past amount. 
In our outpatient department in the hospital, inquiries have increased by one quarter to one third. There are no problems with the quantity of publicly funded vaccines for the first week or first month. Currently, some counties and cities think they are not buying enough, so they are still buying more from other private manufacturers. These manufacturers think that if there is more demand in Taiwan, they will naturally import more. There has been a wave of advance orders for privately made vaccines. When they've all been sold out, whether foreign manufacturers can provide enough supplies to make up the gap is another big question. For us, some manufacturers will provide the amount of supplies based on the size of the market. It's very hard to guarantee that they won't change their plans at the last minute, and then they have no way of supplying all their products to Taiwan. Or even if they are not able to supply until next spring, at which time the best time for prevention will have passed. The doctor also reminds the public that symptoms of flu and pneumonia are similar. After infection, both can produce symptoms such as a fever, sore throat, cough, fatigue, and muscle aches. People with such symptoms are advised not to take them lightly. China is the only place in the world where pandas are native. As far back as the Tang Dynasty, China was giving pandas to other countries as gifts, and this later became known as panda diplomacy. Today, in part one of this Sunday special report, we look back at the history of China's cutest diplomats and how they shaped international relations in the 20th century. With their round, lovable faces, bulging tummies, and their way of waddling about as they walk, pandas are instantly recognizable. Then there's the patches around their eyes, their black ears, shoulders, and limbs, matched with white fur everywhere else. Their history on the planet is already very long, and in the past they were spread over a vast area. They were all over Asia. By the time modern-day scientists discovered them, they were already confined to a small area. They were only found in one part of China. Legend has it that the Tang Dynasty Empress Wu Zetian once had a pair of live white bears and seventy bear pelts presented as a gift to Japanese Emperor Tenmu. Now Wu Zetian in Tang Dynasty, back in the Tang Dynasty, Empress Wu Zetian. This was some time after she came into power, and she had these things: sent a pair of animals to Japan. So if we go by the historical records, the earliest country outside China to get pandas was Japan. Pandas are native to an area in China. In the 19th century, Western scientists first learned about them when French missionary Armand David, who was proselytizing in Sichuan Province's Muping Township, bought a dead panda cub from a local hunter and sent it home as a specimen to tell the world about the animal's existence. It is undoubtedly cute, and it appears very helpless, even appearing very weak. It's not hard for people to become enamored with it, and as you see, worldwide there aren't many types of bears this large of two colors like this. So it's very easy for people to quickly fall in love with it. In 1936, American fashion designer Ruth Elizabeth Harkness led a 19-member exhibition deep into central Sichuan, where in a forest 2,000 meters above sea level, they captured a 1.3-kilogram panda cub. They named it Su Ling. 
They took the panda, dressed it up to look like a dog, gave it a dog's name, and then smuggled it into the U.S. When they first put it on display, it attracted the masses from all over. Everybody clamored to catch a glimpse of the panda. Given human characteristics and portrayed as members of a family, pandas were brought to big screen in cartoon form, and then in comic form in newspapers. It's not hard to see how much Americans love pandas. Not surprisingly, pandas went on to take up a role in diplomacy. During World War II and after February 1941. American magazine Times founder Henry Luce founded the United China Relief to seek public donations for the Chinese war effort. His fund also collected medical supplies and other commodities, which is sent to China. During the war, Chiang Kai-shek's wife Song Meiling was responsible for assisting wartime refugees. She appealed for international support on numerous occasions. If you wish to avoid the calamities that are befalling China now and the killing and mutilation of your loved ones and your fellow beings. Boycott Japanese goods until the Japanese militaries have left our soil. In May 1941, Song Mei-ling and her older sister Song Ai-ling worked together to send a pair of giant pandas to the U.S. as a thank you for its assistance in the war. A grand handover ceremony was held at the Dongqing International Broadcasting Building where China National Radio and China Radio International, as well as the U.S. Columbia Broadcasting System, broadcasted the proceedings live. In local time, it was November 9th, roughly 5 or 6 in the morning. For the U.S., it was in the afternoon, the afternoon on the 8th. That time slot was the weekend, so for them, it was radio prime time. They wanted to take advantage of prime time to hold a handover ceremony in Chongqing. Prior to that, pandas were given away through all sorts of channels, unofficial channels. This was the first time the government gave permission for pandas to be presented in the name of the government. So we like to say that this was the start of panda diplomacy. During the Christmas holiday, two pandas arrived at New York's Brooklyn Zoo. As goodwill ambassadors of the U.S.-China relationship, they received much attention. Children all over the U.S. voted on the panda's name, which came to be called Pandi and Panda. Starting in February 1943, Madam Chang engaged in a whirlwind of interviews in the U.S. Why did her visit precipitate such a whirlwind? It's because of the foundation she laid before arriving. In 1949, the KMT moved the capital to Taiwan after the Chinese Communist Party secured control over mainland China. In the Cold War that ensued, the PRC was hit by U.S. sanctions. To stabilize its relationship with the Soviet Union, the PRC gave pandas to Moscow Zoo. 
First of all, there was the hope in China that more countries could recognize it. However, the U.S. and other Western countries have put up a blockade around the communist bloc. The Soviet Union was also providing assistance to other communist countries, including economic aid. In 1969, former U.S. President Richard Nixon took office and initiated major changes. Nixon broke the diplomatic impasse with China, making a visit to the country himself. While sending Nixon off, former Chinese Premier Zhou Enlai handed a pack of Panda brand cigarettes to Nixon's wife, who responded that she doesn't smoke. Zhou replied that he didn't just want to give her cigarettes. He also wanted to give her pandas. He later sent the U.S. a pair of pandas, one named Ling Ling and one named Xing Xing. United States, I am pleased to be here and accept the precious gift of the panda. Ling Ling and Xing Xing were received as gifts two months later, arriving at the Washington's National Zoological Park. Suddenly, a trip to the zoo to see pandas was at the top of the agenda for American families. That pair of pandas was welcomed by the Americans to an unimaginable degree. And if you juxtapose those cute pandas with the very negative American view of its communist enemy after the 1950s, you'd think that China had really changed. After that gift to the U.S., Japan, France, and seven other countries received a total of 23 pandas collectively. Meanwhile, out in the wild, pandas were finding it harder and harder to survive. In the early past, they had all of southern China to themselves. Their footprints were everywhere. However, as the population in China grew, land needs grew with it. In many places, along foothills, farmland was carved out of the land. There were fewer and fewer bamboo groves, which pandas rely on for food. Increasingly endangered, pandas continued to be gifted to other countries. Conservationists worldwide condemned the practice, and in 1982, China stopped calling the pandas gifts, but it continued sending them to other countries in a different format. When countries really wanted pandas, China laid out conditions. These conditions included annual lease payments. China was renting the pandas out and not selling them or gifting them. Also, after a 10-year period, the panda and any baby cub that was born to it had to be returned to China. By 1996, these conditions were already in place. Aside from expanding their diplomacy, they also earned quite a lot of money from this. Why do I say they earned a lot of money? At the time, there were many countries that wanted this species, because if this species could live in the country and survive, it would be a testament to the country's ability to conserve and care for animals. That would be on show for the whole world. First loaned out on long-term contracts and then on short-term leases, Pandas became an implement of commerce, drawing rebuke from conservationists across the world. In the end, China declared that in the future, pandas would only be sent abroad for research exchanges. Join us next Sunday for part two of our feature on panda diplomacy, which picks up with the landing of two giant pandas in Taiwan. 
Yunling will be kicking off the second edition of its Tao Farm Art Festival on October 1st. Over the 11 days of the festival, theater performances, Tao art competitions and farmers markets, among other events, will liven up the streets of the county. Organizers have enlisted award-winning entertainer Daniel Lowe to promote the event both at the opening press conference and on YouTube. With the lively performance, Paper Windmill Theatre starts off the promotional event for the 2020 Towel Farm and Art Festival in Yunling. The press conference turns into a fashion show and the model shows off a bag made from towel fabric. It's designed as a retro Taiwanese bag that's reminiscent of the nation's industrial era. As a celebrity spokesperson, Lo gave Tower Art a try. The Taiwanese singer started a YouTube channel around a year ago. He recently promoted the festival, uploading a video of his trip to Huwei, Yunling. In the video, he showed viewers local eats and attractions. Didn't I recently release an album title experience? Well, that experience was pretty bad. No one really listened to the album. So I thought I'd start a YouTube channel. The festival is to last 11 days and feature Yunling's towels, a farmer's market, and local delicacies. Organizers say they hope to take advantage of the mid-autumn festival and double-ten national day holidays to attract more visitors.